testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission. If uh, this is your first time here with us this morning, um, or if you've never received one before, we'd love to give you a scripture journal. Uh, so we've been going through the book of James the last couple months, and there'll be a couple people that'll pass one out to you. If you need a scripture journal, just go ahead and raise your hand and someone will give you one um, as they walk around um, the back of the area there. Feel free to grab a scripture journal. So I'm excited this morning, church, to bring to you God's word. Uh, today, my sermon is called Boasting About Tomorrow. Boasting About Tomorrow. Um, and we're going to just look at James chapter 4 and just see what the Lord wants to share with us um, as we work through uh, this text of God's word. You know, you never know what a day will bring. You know, on June the 5th, quite a while ago, 1944, the German army was really powerful and strong. On June the 5th in 1944, Germany, Nazi Germany and her leader Adolf Hitler, they were winning. She had the support of Imperial Japan and fascist Italy. And beginning in May of 1940, Germany successfully conquered all of northwestern France, and they defeated the British military, kicking them out of that area. Over 338,000 soldiers, Nazi Germany's, kicked out of France um, in a battle that we know as Dunkirk. You might have seen that movie a couple years ago. On June the 5th, 1944, there were over 9 million soldiers in the Nazi German army. But on June the 6th, 1944, the very next day, the Western Allies, after many setbacks and delays, began the cross-channel invasion of northern France, codenamed Overlord, what we call D-Day. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was the supreme commander of these coordinated efforts of over 12 different nations as they fought along this 50-mile stretch of beach in France. You see, surprise was an essential element to this Allied invasion plan. From a manpower standpoint, the Allies would have fought against 10 to 1 odds if Germany knew exactly where they were going to attack. The Nazis had over 2,000 miles of beach, uh, sorry, of beach coastland fortified against Allied invasion. This includes a defensive wall of over 6.5 million mines. They had tens of thousands of tank digits over concrete bunkers and pillboxes that had heavy firing artillery and fast firing artillery and other formidable beach and water obstacles all along the northern part of France and Europe so that they could stop any Allied invasion from gaining back the territory that they had taken. The Germans were entrenched very powerfully on the beaches overlooking all the possible landing spots where the Allies could attack. And yet, this invasion was one of the great turning points of the entire 20th century. This was an immense Allied invasion, an immense Allied presence that would take over this part of Nazi-occupied Europe forever, never to be retaken by Germany. If this Operation Overlord or D-Day, as it's more commonly referred to, would have failed, the consequences would have been super steep. For one, they would not have been able to go back and take any of the beach for an entire year if that day, June 6, wasn't a successful day. You see, Hitler would have been able to strengthen his defenses in the area. He would have continued his technological advances in warfare and he would have finished off the evil genocide of ethnic and societal undesirables. 
they would have gained even more power. But you see, one day could change everything. One successful moment can alter the course of history. And what James is telling us this morning is that we do not know what a day will bring, much like Nazi Germany did. We cannot predict tomorrow. And so this morning, I want us to just walk through these handful of verses in James chapter 4, starting in verse 14, starting in verse 13. Read with me what the word says again. This is what the word says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. My first point this morning is, tomorrow is unknown. Tomorrow is unknown. And I love how James starts off this section of his letter because it's a reminder to us that although tomorrow is unknown, he challenges us never to forget the one who is already in tomorrow. He challenges us not to forget God. And that's so easy for us as individuals to do. It's so easy to wake up each day and to totally forget God, forget our purpose in him, forget his mission for our lives. It's easy to ignore God, to make plans as though God did not exist. Oftentimes we think of the secular world, the outside world, those who don't trust and believe in Jesus as those people who live as though there is no God. But it's so easy for people who even name the name of Christ to forget that God exists, to go through a day without ever speaking to God, to go through a day without ever reading God's word and hearing God's voice as he speaks to his people. This is a challenge to all of us not to forget God, to remember that he is always present, always present around us and he wants to direct our lives. You see, James allows us an opportunity to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, when was the last time that we consulted God before we made a big life decision? When was the last time we consulted God before we made every little decision? You see, God is so real and so present that every moment of our lives, we should remember him, reflect on him, and turn to him. No matter what's going on in and around us, he's worthy of our focus and our attention. How frequently do you pray and ask God his direction before you make plans? I think most of us would have to admit that when we decide to do something, we just do it. We just go into the next day, make preparations, make plans without consulting the Lord consistently, without seeking his will fervently without being intentional in our turning to the Lord. You see, we should never neglect to entrust our hopes and our plans to God and his counsel. You might remember a couple months ago, actually um, the second to last time I preached, we were working through the book of Joshua. And as we were working through the book of Joshua, we got to Joshua chapter 9. And Joshua 9.14 says these words, which, which at the moment we were working through, it should have, like, really startled us because, like, this is something that, like, it's like commentary in Joshua. 
And typically in Joshua, it just says this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But he kind of gives us a little behind the scenes as to what God was thinking in this moment. And Joshua 9.14 says, So the men took some of their provisions, took some of the, the Gideonite provisions. The Israelites took some of the Gideonite provisions. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And it's this like really startling moment in this book where it says that they did what they wanted to do and they completely ignored God. They didn't seek his counsel. They didn't ask his opinion. They didn't try to get his direction. God told them that when they entered into the promised land, they were to wipe out all of the peoples that were in that land. And the Gideonites came and they, they tried to deceive them. They said that they were not from the land, they were from outside, and they just wanted to make a peace treaty with them, and they believed them because they didn't consult the Lord, because they didn't seek God's voice, try to determine what God's purpose and will was in that moment. And consequently, they disobeyed God. Consequently, they did not do what God had clearly commanded and told them to do as they entered into the promised land. And this is a common temptation for us to make plans, to make decisions, to enter into conversations without consulting the Lord. And that should never be the case. See, our Savior, he gives us a parable to help us to understand how easy it is for us to live as though he did not exist. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, the word says this. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus gives us this this great parable to remind us that it's so easy in our lives to be comfortable, to be at ease, to feel like we can relax, eat and drink, he says, be merry. He felt like everything was great. His life was going super smoothly. It was an incredibly great life. He was comfortable. He was like us Americans. And God interrupted his story, required his soul from him that night, and reminded him that God always comes first that we should always remember the Lord, that no matter what we do in life, everything we do in life is built around the purpose and the plan of God. Man, this morning, church, never forget God and all the plans that you make and everything that you do. Remember the Lord. That, that those last words that Christ says in that verse is, so is the man who is not rich toward God. Are you rich toward God? How often do you praise him? Do you magnify him? 
You enjoy him. To glorify God truly means to enjoy him. How often do you spend each and every day enjoying the Lord? He challenges us to never forget the God who is in tomorrow. One of the really interesting things about the book of James is that in so many ways, James is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, so, so James is, is taking in so many uh, different contexts and ways, he's taking the words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount and he's like fleshing them out and allowing us to understand a little bit deeper what Jesus means by the things that he says in that sermon. And this is no different. Like this area of his book is no different. He's going to help us to understand a little bit, uh, with a little bit more clarity, what Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34 tells us. You see, it's easy for us to not trust in God because it's, it's so natural for us to want to make plans because we trust ourselves. Like we trust our ability to reason. We trust our ability to figure things out. We trust our ability to have success in the future. It's easy for us to forget God consequently because we have so much trust in ourselves, so much self-trust. But sometimes we realize that we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and that produces anxiety. Maybe you've come into this room and you're saying in your mind, I have anxiety. I'm anxious about tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. You know, the, the unknown nature of tomorrow causes you to kind of seize up and to become tight and worried. And so if you've come in here this morning with that thought, I'm worried about tomorrow. Like, I know God is there, but I don't know if I can trust that what he's going to do tomorrow is going to be good. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them every day. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And when James tells us that you make plans about tomorrow, 
disregarding God, you never have to worry about tomorrow. If God takes care of every bird, there's millions, billions of them, and if he takes care of every plant on this planet, he will take care of you. You are of much more value than sparrows to God. You can trust him. You can believe him. He will take care of his sheep. He will take care of his own. If you come in here worried about tomorrow, you have nothing to worry about when you trust in God. God is faithful. God is good. He will be there. He is the God of tomorrow. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He will always exist. He will always be present. I love this, this song, song called The Rock Won't Move. And some of the lyrics go like this. It says, when the ground beneath my feet gives way. See, some of you thought I was going to sing there, but I didn't. And I'm not, I'm not. When the ground beneath my feet gives way, and I hear the sound of crashing waves, and all my world is washing out to sea. I'm hidden safe in the God who never moves, holding fast to the promise of the truth that you are holding tighter still to me. My hope is in the promise of your blood, my support within the raging flood. Even in the tempest, I can sing. I'm hidden safe in the God who never moves, holding fast to the promise of your truth that you are holding tighter still to me. And the chorus goes, the rock won't move and his word is strong. The rock won't move and his love can't be undone. And then it goes into this, this hymn that we know so well. He's, they say, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And man, those songwriters got it right. Like they understood the providential way in which God works among his people. We have a rock that doesn't move. We have a God who is steadfast and solid and secure, a God that we never have to worry about because he's always taking care of his own. So although tomorrow is unknown, James also reminds us that life is brief. He says this in verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You see, he's given us this hypothetical situation of this business person who makes plans. And they say that tomorrow they're going to go into a city and they're going to make a profit. They're going to make money. And then he reminds us that our lives are brief. Our lives are short. We have this little tiny window to be able to execute God's mission for our lives on this planet. And I love how the Amplified Bible kind of like uh, paraphrases this particular verse. It says these words. Yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen in your life tomorrow. What is secure in your life? You are merely a vapor, like a puff of smoke or a wisp of steam from a cooking pot that is visible for a little while and then vanishes into thin air. Our lives are so short. 
And we have constant reminders of this as we look at the people around us, people that we sometimes thought would be here forever, whose lives are taken away quickly. Sometimes we see children perish, and we see teenagers perish, and we see young adults perish, and we just see people perish sometimes that we just don't expect. We have these constant reminders around us that our lives are brief, they're short. It's so easy for us to, to be like this hypothetical businessman in this passage who, who thinks that he's in control. You know, he's making plans about tomorrow. He's making plans about the profits that he's going to have. And he feels like he is in ultimate control. And that's how we feel. Like we feel as though we have a, a handle on our lives. We feel as though we can figure it out. We feel as though we're strong enough to control the things around us and to direct the course of our lives. We have this false sense of security in our control, much like this hypothetical person does in James. And James isn't saying that, that that planning is bad. He's not saying that investing in and of itself is bad. Making preparations and plans in general is not bad. None of those things are wrong. In fact, Proverbs actually encourages us to do so. So scripture isn't contradicting itself here when it says that you shouldn't have this mindset the mindset that we're trying to correct is this self-confidence, is this arrogance, is this boast, this boasting about tomorrow, this confidence that's ultimately rooted and grounded in you. That's the thing that James is trying to get us to let go of, to reject. You see, we should never fail to recognize God's providential control in the temporary nature of life. See, Luke chapter 16, we get this story. This is the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16 says these words in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who have passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You see, this rich man was super comfortable. He felt secure. And who he was and what he had. 
He didn't realize that he was going to die soon. He didn't understand what tomorrow would bring. He lived like there was no tomorrow. He feasted. He didn't have any needs. He was surrounded by dignitaries. He was satisfied and honored by all those around him. He had like society's praise in his ears. And he never helped the poor man because his life felt endless. And he was really ultimately all about himself. But this poor man, he lived like there would be a tomorrow. He trusted in the God of the universe. He trusted in the one true God. And he made sure before he died that his destiny was secure in God. So that when that unexpected day came, the word says that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. But this rich man, all that pomp and circumstance, all that like grand life that he had lived on this planet, it says when he died, he was just buried. This other man went into the kingdom. You see, this poor man understood just how brief life is. He had a name, Lazarus, in this parable. Jesus almost never gives names, but he gave this man a name because he wanted to signify the value and the worth that this poor man had to God. But the rich man has no name. See, this rich man was somebody in life, but then he died and he became the ultimate nobody. He did not consider that his life was brief. He didn't know what tomorrow would bring. He didn't know that God would call his name and he would ultimately end his life. Charles Spurgeon, who is the prince of preachers, he said this about the brevity of life. Here is the history of the grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. We're just like grass. We're here for this very brief window. And then our lives are over. And what we do in this brief window has eternal significance. Where we place our trust this day has eternal value to God. Our lives are very brief. So we must trust God. Let's look at verse 15 and see the third point. Third point this morning is the Lord's will takes primacy. The Lord's will takes primacy. Verse 15 says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, this, this past year, the Lord really has brought home for me so powerfully these words. I, I, I feel from an from a everyday life experience that all the times when I try to make these like grand plans, like, like I want to go to, uh, to uh, the movies, or I want to go to the lake, or I want to do so many like little trivial things in life. Like I feel like so oftentimes, like when I don't say if the Lord wills, like there'll be some like um, some obstacle that'll come up. It's something that'll just kind of like block my path. 
And it's so like powerful, like how the Lord like uses our lives and how like he does so many different things to, to, to redirect our focus back on him. And for me in this past year, this is one of the things that the Lord did is every time I did in, in my heart or on my lips say, if the Lord wills, the Lord was like, okay, I can take that away. Like you think that you're going to go off and do that thing? No, I can, I can change your plans. I can bring this like unexpected thing into your path that will cause you to have to reroute what you desire. See, before we do everything that we do, we have to always remember that it's only if the Lord wills. God's will has to take primacy. His will has to be not only on our lips, but also in our hearts. Every decision must be based on submission to God's will. And that reminds me of a really big decision in my life many years ago. I was, at the time, uh, working at this, uh, this school here in Gainesville. It was, a, it was a K-12 school here in Gainesville. And I had this, like, temporary um, assignment at this school. I was only going to work there for a year. And because of that, I kind of, like, decided to, to make plans and preparations to kind of, like, uh, prepare for the future by going to Jacksonville. So I was working in Gainesville. But I went up to Jacksonville, went to this private Christian school, and I interviewed there. And when I interviewed there at that school, uh, the principal was like, you're hired. Like, hired on the spot. We start in August. Like, we want you to come up here, work at this private Christian school, and we think that it'll be great. You have experience in this area. Go off and do it. But what I really wanted to do, I think, at that time was I wanted to work at the K-12 school that I worked at in Gainesville. And the day before, I was going to go to the school and speak with the, the leadership at the school, one of the guys in my church, one of the, the elders, one of the pastors, um, he and I were having dinner with his family. And he said, Theo, like, you know, what are you doing, you know, like in the fall? Like, like what, what are your plans? And I was like, man, like, I'm just like, I'm wrecked inside. Like, I interviewed at this private Christian school like a month ago. I got the, the job. Like, that's what I'm doing. Like, as far as I know, like, I'm going in that direction. But I'm really wrecked because tomorrow I'm actually going to go back to the K-12 school and um, have this exit interview. And then we'll kind of see what happens from there. I don't know what God's going to do, but, you know, I know that I got these, like, two options. And so he was like, well, it feels like you really want one of those two options more than the other one. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of do. Yeah, you're, you're kind of, like, seeing that right. And he's like, you got to figure that out, man, before you go tomorrow and uh, you go and, and interview with those people in this exit interview to close out the, the school year. So that night I went home and I went to bed. Um, and I woke up at like five o'clock in the morning, um, and I was so anxious. Like I, I probably was the most anxious about that over anything in my entire life. I was just like, man, like, what am I going to do? You know, like I got these two options and I don't know if this like one school is going to like want me to like come back at all. You know, the K-12 school and I already got this job at this, this other school. And I just don't know like which of these two paths that I should pursue. So I just like went into, um, in, into the shower and I was like intensely praying. And I don't think in my entire life I've ever prayed for anything as fervently as I prayed in that moment over that decision. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I probably prayed for like an hour and a half. You know, I, I got out and I felt like God had given me like this like settled peace over like where I should go out of those like two schools. He had, like, helped me to understand that what I ultimately needed in that moment was to, to trust in him 
and to trust in his will and to seek his face in his direction. There is so much anxiety in myself when I just like rested on myself to kind of figure things out and make my own plans. But there is so much confidence in God when we turn those things over to him and ultimately let him make the decision. Let him figure out the path. Let him figure out what's next. So I did that. I felt like, man, like this is the place where I should go. And <clears throat> that next day, um, I, I, sorry, that, that same day, um, later that day, I went to that school um, and they were like, we want you to come back. Um, and you know, like ultimately, like that was like God's direction. God's will in that moment was so valuable. He made it really, really clear what he wanted to be done. See, we always have to remember that it's God's will alone that should take the priority in our decision-making. Jesus, again, in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once again on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that it's his kingdom and his will that ultimately has to be done. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. My fourth point is this point. Humility is vital. Humility is vital. Verse 16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. See, he tells us that so oftentimes when we don't pursue the counsel of God, when we trust in our understanding, when we try to figure out our lives, that's really arrogant. That's really self-centered. That's really this, this boastful arrogance that makes assertions over the future. It's us, again, trying to take control and tell God, this is what we'll do. This is what I want. This is what I want to go in in terms of my future direction in my life. But we must always remember who controls the future. It's one person who controls the future. And you go through, like, all these verses, like you're, you're in verse 13, and you're working your way down to verse 17, and when you get to verse 17, like verse 17 just like really just like kind of doesn't make sense in a sense. It kind of feels like out of place. You know, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Like that statement just kind of like, well, where does that come from? You know the right thing to do, but you don't do it, so it's sin. How does that fit into this, this context? What he's trying to tell us is that the things that he has spoken about in his letter up until this point, and even as we go into chapter 5 and we finish out the rest of this letter, all of these things that he's told us are the right thing to do. You know, when we fail to do the right thing, we're disobeying God ultimately, and we're sinning against God. The right thing is always to follow God's word, trust in his word. Remember that his words are right and righteous and tremendously life-giving. God's words are tremendously life-giving. And you've noticed that so far in these chapters, right? Like when, when we're in chapter one, 
You know, like Kevin started us off in chapter one, and, and he says that you should ask in faith for whatever you want. Like that was the command, that when we come to God, we ask him for the things that we need in faith, fully trusting that he can do it. And he tells us that, that God cannot be tempted by evil. Like when we come into different circumstances in our life and we feel like, man, like this like really bad thing happened in my life. Maybe God did this thing. James says, no, God cannot be tempted by evil. God is pure. God is not a man like us. And then he reminds us that, that, that we should be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Man, that's just like really good practical life advice. How many times have we gotten in trouble because we weren't quick to hear, we are quick not to hear, and really fast to speak? And James says, no, like, if you're going to follow Christ, you have to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And he goes on, James does, and he says, don't just be a, a hearer of God's word, but be a doer also. He says, like, when you hear these words from God, like, the ultimate power is when you do them. You have to perform God's words. You can't just listen to it. You have to do it for it to be operative in your life, for it to be powerful in your life. And then, like, James is, like, he's so, like, cut and dry, and he's, like, telling us, like, all these different things that we should do. Like, this is the right thing. This is the wrong thing. But he tells us, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Like when you feel like condemned and you feel like you're just like beat down and worn down, like always remember that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he goes on and he says, faith is good. You have to have faith. But faith without works is dead. Like if you believe but you don't live out the things that you say you believe, it's dead. It's worthless. It has no significance. He says, no one can tame the tongue. The tongue is a restless evil. No one can tame it. Like it's this like little small thing that just controls everything in our lives. And then he says, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom are diametrically opposed to one another. They're the total opposite. One exalts God, the other one exalts self. It says earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom are utterly opposed to one another. And then last week, when they reminded us that we should draw near to God and he will draw near to us, that God gives grace to the humble. So when you hear all these words, you have to do them. You have to live out these words. He says that for you to know the right thing, all of these things that he's already described to us in this letter, for you to know what the right thing is and not to do it, like to him it is sin, to you it is sin. To know all of these great things that we should be living out in our lives and not to do it is sin. He gives us this like, what for, for a lot of us would be this totally like new category of sin called sins of, of, of omission. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of theology for a second. So there are sins of commission, and sins of commission is when you do things that you shouldn't do. And then there are sins of omission. So let me give you an example of a sin of, of commission. So sin of commission is when you steal or you lie. That's doing something that you shouldn't do. Those are sins of commission. But then there's this other category of sin, 
And sin is like super deep. So this is, I'm not giving you an exhaustive understanding of sin. But there's another category of sin that are sins of omission. When you don't do what you should do. And that's what James is describing here. Sins of, of omission. He's saying that failing to do what is good is sinful. Not doing what is right before God in front of God's sight really matters to God. Like it's not just the things that you do, it's the things that you don't do that you should do. Those things are sinful too. He says, for him who knows to do right and doesn't do it, for him it is sin. For him it is wrong. God notices when we don't do things just as keenly and sharply as he notices when we do things that are not pleasing in his sight. Peter tells us these words in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Peter says, they promised them freedom, these false teachers, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, what we would call a pig, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, Peter says that for these people to, to know Jesus, to know God, to have got that understanding of the purity and the goodness of God, and then to turn away from it, that's so much worse than not knowing at all. He says there's accountability there. He says to know what is right and not to trust it, not to trust Jesus, the ultimate right one, not to trust in God, is sin. You can sin when you don't do what you should do. Those are sins of omission. And I can't apply these words for all of your lives. Like, I, I don't know what you do throughout the course of a day and how you operate within your lives. I don't know the things that go undone by you from the standpoint of what God would deem as righteous and right in his sight, pure and good. But I do know that God calls all of us who trust and know him and believe in him to live lives that are honoring to him at all times and to fulfill his word at all times. It's so easy for us to, to sin in this way. But despite our sin, there is always hope when we reach out our hands to God. God is always present to save us. And we've already seen this, right? Like we saw this last week. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. See, Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, beginning of verse 6, he says these words. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him 
while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And sometimes we separate those last words from those first words. Like we, so many of us know those words for, for my thoughts are higher than yours, they're better, but we separate that context. But there's this really great book that our podcast has been working through called Gentle and Lowly. Um, I would strongly encourage you guys to, to listen to, to Fetterman and David and Kevin as they're working through Gentle and Lowly right now. And in chapter 17, the book says these words about this verse. The passage in which we find his ways are not our ways comes from Isaiah 55. And in context, it means something quite different. It is a statement not of the surprise of God's mysterious providence, but of the surprise of God's compassionate heart. There is only one other place in the Bible where we have the exact phrase, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's in Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, David prays, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. The two passages, Psalm 103.11 and Isaiah 55.9, mutually illumine one another. God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts, in that his thoughts of love and ways of compassion stretch beyond our mental horizon. He isn't like you. Even the most intense human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartfelt thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. His power runs so deep that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. What he's basically saying is despite all of our sin, God is incredibly faithful to restore us despite our sin and to redeem us and to make us new and to save us. A testimony to God's faithfulness to his mission, which is to see the gospel in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life.